After a few weeks in the gospel meeting area, Denise and I are thankful to be able to be back here today. It certainly has uh, been an interesting time sharing the Word of God in various places and locations in uh, everywhere from Clay County to Jackson County on into Putnam County as well. And yet we're honored to be back here today with our church family and thankful to be able to share the gospel here, to encourage one another even as you do to us. And we're certainly thankful for the Word of God even as we just prayed a minute ago. These songs that we've just sang, I Need Thee Every Hour, referring of course to Jesus. The appreciation about we come to worship even as we sang that opening song. For the next few moments, what do we think about marriages? Isn't it an amazing thing, something is common. After all, give thought to the number of marriages that take place every day in our land. And yet, sometimes, as we lose appreciation of the great respect that goes with that union, why don't we take just a few minutes today and use the Word of God to share with us some tips on how we can ensure our marriages are strong, that they have the fidelity and the foundation that God would desire for them to have, and certainly we could encourage that in others as well. As we do all of that, this opening slide will be one that simply draws to our attention the great honor that the Word of God has to say about the, the, the union that you and I recognize as marriage. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage is honorable in all. Pause to, comp to contemplate with me that word honor. Marriage is honorable. That's the way God designed it. That is the way in which He intended it. And if God looks upon it with that degree of honor, surely you and I should look upon it too with an understanding that goes with the nature of that honor. I think we all recognize that sometimes in our modern society it would appear that men have cheapened the appreciation of marriage to where it doesn't have the brilliance and luster that it once had. And yet, you and I know that the Word of God has never changed in its description of it and in its consideration of what it's supposed to be. It is with that said, why don't we then take a few minutes today, remind ourselves of some tips which the Word of God would share with us to ensure that a marriage would be strong, that it would have the characteristics that God would wish for it to have. I have put these in no particular order, but I chose to begin with at least something that would be a bedrock foundation. Under the banner of the word commitment, commitment, two people, a man and a woman, committed to one another. I say it that way for this reason. No matter what, a marriage may face, the challenges, the difficulties, the hardships, the particulars of what may well come their way. And you and I know from our own experience that that can be an extensive list. I know that in the marriage vows, we somewhat try to make sure that the bases are at least covered. Sickness, health, rich or poor, and other kinds of matters like that. And yet, sometimes the challenges of health or the challenges of poverty or the challenges of life's demands, they can all weigh heavily upon the shoulders and weigh heavily upon the mind. And yet, through it all, this, these two, this man and woman, have made an oath, a covenant agreement one with another, and the degree of that commitment must be a strong one. It surely would be fair to say in that light. No problem could be too great. 
for them, together with, of course, the guidance of the Word of God to help overcome. But that word commitment needs to be there. And so one thing that, that certainly should be understood is no matter what a problem may arise, never ought there to be a thought of divorce. Never ought there to be a thought that, well, I'm going to settle this by way of I'm going to leave and never come back. Even when a fight happens or even when a disagreement escalates, may we never allow it to arrive at a point wherein we start thinking about the D word. Surely, in a, in a light of that understanding, even as a young couple would begin to contemplate or entertain the thought of marriage, you enter it with the thought of commitment till death do us part. When one enters it that way, it thus provides at least a consideration whereby the idea of separation in that way will thus not be a serious consideration. As the Word of God would speak about then the nature of how God looks upon divorce and how again only for that one cause of fornication and even then there could be ways in which that marriage could be salvaged or saved. The words I've invited you to consider on the slide in Matthew 19 verse number 6. What God has joined together let not man put us under. Now, as Jesus gave that description to those Pharisees and others who may have been listening, He pointed out to them that though they were asking about the very nature of the issue in divorce, and He answered it in verse number 6 and those verses that follow by pointing out that God's testimony, His idea concerning marriage is so lasting, it is so permanent that it ought not be entertained in the thought of men, except under the, un, under the most dire of circumstances, those connected again with fornication in mind. This issue of fornication, perhaps it's one that can lead us to think about some of the next ones we'll describe shortly. But for right now, what about a second idea that you and I can keep in mind as we strive to contemplate marriage? What about the word honor? We just mentioned commitment. What about honor? I began a moment ago with that text of Hebrews 13. Why don't we invoke it again, this time from a slightly different angle. Marriage is honorable in all. Now that phrase, in all, appears to identify the basic understanding that from perspective of God as well as that from men, marriage ought to be respected looked upon with a degree of understanding of a great elevation in value and worth and something that's worth fighting for, something that's worth appreciating in all that it presents. As the thought of marriage is described in such a matter of honor, may I say that means the husband and his wife need to honor it. You honor one another. It's not just the entity of marriage, but the husband honors his wife valuing her, cherishing her for that which she is. And by the same token, she values and cherishes her husband for, in fact, what he brings to that marriage and what he is to her. The word honor, of course, is used in the Bible in many ways, highlighting the sweetness of what so often is honorable. You and I know that the human family often has devised things which are not terribly honorable and often pursues that which is not honorable. But yet marriage is to be treated with honor. Don't you still find it interesting that, at least here in our country, 
we tend to at least understand somewhat in our part of the world at least about the nature of marriage. We have a very solemn ceremony. There's an official that, of course, is officiating the matter. There's a nice ordination about the place. It's often ordained with flowers and nice pieces that make it look very pretty. And there's a solemnity involved in it. There's a quietness over the audience as the official makes the statements of the vows and the couple repeat those vows so that at least a fair hearing is able to, to in fact, take place. Not only that, we realize there's a piece of paper that's a, that is signed officially and is kept in government records. It is such that we appreciate that solemnity and the honor that goes with it. But isn't it interesting that on that slide, I've invited you to notice a few verses of Scripture with me. What about the honor that the Word of God would describe in the following ways? In Ephesians 5.33, the wife is commanded to reverence, to honor her husband appropriately. Now that word honor there again is not stated as an optional matter. May I say that husbands are commanded to honor their wives in 1 Peter 3, 7. And thus it goes both ways. We see then that that means a husband and wife ought not dishonor the other one. They ought not be insulting one another in public. They ought not be thus reflecting upon one another in a hurtful or damaging or somewhat slanderous way. It is to be highlighted that that honor is a very genuine and real part of that which is their ordinary way of living. Honor. Now those words that the Bible used perhaps allowed me to close that one by saying in Proverbs 18.22 that whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth mercy, obtaineth the grace of the Lord. That word favors, it appears there, is a reminder how that the very entity of marriage is such a blessing that was designed by God. What about the next one on that slide, which would be number three in our list? After commitment, which you and I mentioned earlier, and of course after this issue of honor, what about the consideration of life? You may argue that I could have chosen a different wording for that one. But I thought that that one would at least do justice to what the Word of God has to say about it. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have a rather magnificent presentation. We have often reflected upon it. We know it well. We often use it, you see, to teach about marriage, a husband's relationship to his wife and vice versa. But Paul pointed out something dramatic in verses 30 and 31. He said, I'm basically talking about the church. I'm talking about the relationship of Christ to His church. But yet all the while he was teaching us a fair amount about marriage, wasn't he? A part of that reads like this. No man ever yet hated his own life, but yet he nourishes and cherishes it. Well, you and I know that under the normal manner of approaching things, we all do this. We take care of ourselves. A person that's sick will take medicine and pursue the, doc the services of a doctor or physician or otherwise. And if we're wounded, we take measures to heal that. We cherish and nourish. I've invited you to note the meaning of those words. To nourish means to feed. It means to nourish. It affords care. It affords that which is needful for recuperation and rightful maintenance and sustenance. 
That word cherish, it means to comfort, to impart warmth. It literally means to exhibit tender care. We do that to ourselves. May I suggest that at least in some way, that's helping to teach us about marriage. We all understand the, the sweetness that goes with that kind of thinking, don't we? This man and woman, this husband and wife, they enjoy each other's company. They, they genuinely enjoy one another and being with them. The sweetness that comes with encouragement and the togetherness that that brings. Quite often, as you and I appreciate that, we, we can sense a genuine joy that comes when they're in one another's presence. How they enjoy being able to encourage and what the other offers and brings to that union. May I say, the Word of God encourages this kind of thing. And so, the couple ought not neglect one another. Work ought never become a higher priority than the spouse. Other things in life ought not become higher priority, and that means the other members of the family. Do you remember what we said as Brother Vestal read it earlier? That a man ought to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, you and I understand the importance of dad and mom, the importance maybe even of other family members. That goes without saying. But they do not rise in priority above one's wife, above one's husband. They are priority one, at least here on earth. Isn't it interesting in that way that as those words were stated in Genesis 2, that was even back in the days of the patriarchal era. You and I remember how strong it was in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe they would give thought to leanings toward dad would triumph leanings toward wife. But God said it's not so. It was never that way. And so today, one of the first things that we would encourage the Word of God in terms of a young couple, you need to make sure that priority goes to spouse, not to dad and mom, Grandpa or grandma, or friends or otherwise, this union is so strong. It is to be so fortified that the consideration of one another is what is regarded in that, in, in that particular way. One of the verses I ask you to consider there, again, was at Ephesians 5, verses 29 and following, where this idea is presented to us in that language, using those verbs you and I just noted. Could I offer, though, that maybe a fourth one? If we're offering these tips for building a strong union, a strong marriage, may I quickly add forgiveness? A note of understanding. There are going to be disagreements. There are going to be those issues upon which there is not full agreement. There will be different ideas. There will be different personalities expressed with regard to certain subjects or with regard to certain kinds of topics. When those moments of disagreement arise, it will be important that one has a heart full of willingness to forgive so that when one of the members says, I'm sorry, the other isn't quick to hold a grudge. The other one isn't quick to hold that over the head of the person from that point forward. What is it the past needs to be forgiven? When that forgiveness has been asked for and extended, then it needs to be understood that that is no longer a matter to hold against that person as if it's a club, but rather 
some of the verses I could bring bring to our attention would take us to the closing words of Ephesians 4. Maybe no passage in all the Bible would bring that thought before us any more swiftly than that one. Beginning in verse 26, and then we'll notice verse 32. But in verse 26, aren't you and I reminded, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That is to say, have a willingness, even when anger arises, and there are times that anger is worthwhile, and there are times when it's appropriate to be angry. But may we strive to never let that anger go so far as to lead to sin. And again, the verse closes by saying, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. May we not allow that to fester onward, to linger on and on, but rather to deal with this issue in such a way that closure can be brought and healthful relations can thus be reinstated. As far as verse 32 of the chapter, Be kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So isn't it true that we first recognize God's willingness to forgive? And then he says, you be kind to each other. Isn't it interesting, sometimes we can express kindness to strangers and to acquaintances, but sometimes we withhold it to our spouse. We need to express kindness in that relationship as well. Be tender-hearted and kind and extend forgiveness. And when that person says, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We do a very unchristian thing if we do not extend forgiveness. For isn't it true that Jesus said God won't forgive us if we won't forgive others? And that other surely includes our spouse, Matthew 6, 14. As you look at that slide that's before you, isn't it a reminder that it does require humility? It does require humility to say, Honey, I'm sorry. I wished I'd have said that differently. I wished we'd have talked about that at a different time. I wish I had used an opportunity to perhaps bring that up in a different way. Many different ways it could be said. But isn't it wonderful then to appreciate two hearts united to the point where forgiveness extended, a togetherness re-enjoined, and that kind of matter encourages us to notice forgiveness is going to be an essential part of this strong and lasting union. But isn't it another reminder how that even in our Christian life, it's a constant reminder how God often so forgives us. The last part on that slide, the word sacrifice. It probably is no stretch to say that this too is an obvious matter for consideration. Just as forgiveness was. In the same way that two individuals, two separate personalities, two separate human beings have been joined to the point where they are described in the Bible as one flesh, it's perhaps to be understood that there will be often matters arising in life wherein behaviors are going to be carefully considered. He always puts other things before me. She always chooses this over me. And if one isn't careful, matters like that can often develop ways of thinking that can be very harmful. That's why I chose the word sacrifice. Do members of the marriage 
do they exhibit the behavior to the other in such a way that in kindness it's understood that he or she is more important than my preferences, more important than what I otherwise would regard as convenience. I would hope, husbands, that all of our wives would recognize that she is more valuable and important than my conveniences, than my preferences. I love her more than those preferences and conveniences of my life. You see, convenience can be a very interesting thing, but it can also be a matter of some consideration as well. Look at what's next on that slide as we understand 1 Corinthians 13, 5. In fact, you might want to be turning to that chapter. It will help us not only guide the rest of this page, but also the next one. In 1 Corinthians 13, we encounter the following statement. It's probably well known, but it never ceases to lose its power. Beginning in verse number 4, the inspired writer had these words to say. The King James uses the word charity. I'm going to use the word love. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, does rejoice in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now that reading of verses 4 through part of verse 8 allows me to note this. What about that particular description given of love that seeks not her own? Love is not selfish. It has been said more than once, and I suspect it's very, very true. A marriage, at least for a time, can stand one selfish person, but it cannot withstand two. That means that there needs to be maturity, and love is not selfish. Her needs, her, her particulars of life have to be elevated, gentlemen. And ladies, his needs, his particulars of life have to be elevated above your own. When that happens, when each one feel that way, they can overcome anything thrown at it. Because they are looking out for the well-being and the welfare of the other one more so than their own. Their own preferences and conveniences are not the final say, but it's that which will be the benefit of the other. When the description of the marriage is like that, doesn't it remind us then, take the other consideration, if there is selfishness, oh, how it makes that marriage so much less than what it could be, and it makes it so much less a blessing than what it ought to be. To close that slide, the word sacrifice suggests something about labor and work. I think we do a great injustice. How often have you heard statements, they fell in love? As if it's just as easy as gravity pulling you off a table or a rock. Marriage takes work. A strong and healthy and fortified and beautiful marriage will not come easy. It requires sacrifice and commitment and setting aside one's selfish preferences it requires effort and labor and work, but what wonderful worth it it is. 
It might be then, as you consider that final statement, this idea of it requires work, that means that commitment we mentioned earlier. Things that involve commitment are not going to be easy. And so it is with marriage. This next slide, as I mentioned, will be a development of some of these things we've already seen. We already knew, as often as the Bible mentions, is that love has to be a very fortified and vital part of any successful marriage. Well, what does love mean then? Love is not merely infatuation. She may be beautiful and pretty, and that's probably why you ask her first out on a date. <laughs> she captures your attention. You just like being with her. She's pretty. You enjoy what she stands for. But over time, it has to mean a lot more than that. After all, with the passing of years, beauty will often have a different appearance as we age. But yet that commitment to one another, that marvelous regard for the worth and value of the other, that will only grow over time. Isn't it interesting in that life that 1 Corinthians 13 brings us back to appreciate this. I just read a moment ago these descriptives. Could we call our attention back to a couple of them? First of all, in verse number 4, love does not vaunt itself. Love isn't arrogant. It doesn't demand its way separate and apart from the well-being of the other. Not only that. In verse number 5, it does not behave itself unseemly. Our world needs a heavy dose of that teaching today, doesn't it? Love is a word that's used by many to describe a lot of things that aren't love. It may be fornication, and it may be other kinds of unseemly activities, but it's not love. Because love does not rejoice in what's evil. And love rejoices only in what's true. That is to say, what is of the truth of God. But not only that. Did you notice it doesn't behave itself inappropriately? It doesn't behave itself shamefully, disgracefully, in a way that calls attention in a negative light. Doesn't that challenge you and me to then see the distinction from what the Bible describes to what the world proclaims? One final thing on that slide. The way in which verse number 7 describes this. Love bears all things. It believes all things. There is a trustworthiness to this marriage based on the entity of love. It hopes all things. These two who realize that together they can do far more they can ever have done separately. The, un the union that has been forged is a citadel of strength that permits what otherwise would not have been so easily accomplished or perhaps even at all. And finally, it endures all things. It has a steadfast foundation that permits a lasting quality. We've looked so far at these elements, which are essential ingredients of this fortified and strong marriage, and yet we all know that from these verses there has to be the inclusion of this one. What about God and His role in the particulars of that marriage? Well, that's the purpose of this slide, and it's the purpose of somewhat drawing together a synthesis on some of these slides that have been before us. The words of Matthew 6.33 still ring so strongly in this context as well. 
I know that we use that verse, and it reads like this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And as readily as we can apply that to the considerations of life in general, meaning that you've got to love God more than you love your job or other particulars of things you may own. Well, let's apply it to marriage. Does that husband and wife love God more than they love their jobs, their house, other particulars of their lives? For that marriage to be all that it can be, that must be the case. And so it is in light of that statement. Isn't it true? God created the very entity we call marriage. He has the instruction manual for it. He has the blueprint for it. Man has never been able to improve upon it, and he never will. And so a marriage that is strong and healthy and a marriage that is the sweetness as the Bible would describe it will have to be centered on the God of heaven. Does that man love God more than anybody or anything else? Does that woman love God more than anybody or anything else? When that degree of love starts it, oh, what a powerful, powerful beginning. And what an idea concerning the absolute approach to anything else that in life. You may notice one of the next things on that slide. What a fantastic kind of description that provides for when that husband and that wife both have that viewpoint. They then will attempt to use the description of the Bible, God's Word, as to how to deal with one another, as to how to deal with the other issues that arise in life. One last thing on that slide then would be, think about the problems that arise when this issue is the one that's the beginning problem. When God is not the center, then we know from the reading of 1 Peter chapter 3 that it's going to lead to many other issues as well. And that's when selfishness or disregard for the other or infidelity in one form or another or various failures of dishonor all of that then can well be a prompting consequence, but it all began with God not being the center. Isn't it a constant reminder as to how central the teaching of the Bible must be? The loveliness that goes with that couple who through life are able to encourage each other in terms of the church as they attend together, encouraging each other, not just at those times, but at other times in regard to things holy in nature. They're able to pray together. As he's able to lead in that prayer, and as she shares the things that she would wish to be shared in that, it's a matter of great strength that binds them and brings them even closer together with each passing day. Is it any wonder that among those descriptions, the end that close First Timothy chapter 2, it's a reminder of how that centrality of God will even lead to what will be the case for the children and others that are blessed by that union. As you close that particular slide with me, it allows me to also close the lesson like this. Could we at least conclude the seven points? I chose seven. Seven is often a number in the Bible that relates to completeness, to perfection, I'll certainly not make the claim that other particulars might not have been mentioned. But I thought those seven 
would do such a powerful job as they synthesize and allow me to say this. When the two, centered upon God, have the commitment described in the Word of God and honor one another as the Word of God would describe, and they do that in a way that not only considers one another, but even in moments of forgiveness or at least testy moments in that relationship, they are able to exhibit a degree of sacrifice and the genuine love spoken of in the Bible. And that will lead to a marriage that is healthy and strong and fortified and one that has the descriptions that you and I have noted today. I realize the Bible's presentation on this in practical application can certainly lead to issues that look different. But isn't it a model to which we each can, can strive? a reality described in the Bible that would lead us to understand some of the things you and I have seen today. Today, some of the things that we so greatly respect, you may think about those who have been married for 50 or 60 or even 65 years or more, and we see in them a commitment. We see in them an endurance. Have you ever given thought of how many years some of the people in the book of Genesis must have been married? How long was Noah married to his wife? Noah lived to be 950 years old. I don't know at what age he married his wife. They could have been married centuries. Well, how, long, how about Methuselah's wife? What about Abraham's wife, Sarah? Now, you and I know some of the challenges that were brought to that marriage due to the fact that they chose to disregard to some degree the teaching of God. But could I again remind us, some of those were married for centuries. Doesn't even remind us today that marriages that last decades can still be such valuable blessings. And you, can I, you and I can appreciate the foretaste of heaven that the union of marriage can actually bring. As we close this lesson today, I hope that some of these matters have been encouraging to us, reminding of us the Bible's teaching of this great subject of marriage. If there's someone in the audience today that would wish to obey the gospel, recognizing at this time that you've never made that decision, and yet you'd like to today, we want you to know the Lord is pleading that you will recognize the urgency of that moment. And as you believe in the Lord, repenting of your sins, confessing the name of Christ, we'd be honored to assist you and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you, however, have known the way of Christian life, but perhaps have wandered from it, you have begun to live in a way that's not right in the sight of God. The Lord still wants you back. He hasn't given up on you at all. He pleads with you that you might make the decision that would return you to a position of forgiveness and a position of fidelity and faith. If today we could be of help in that way as you would make repentance of those sins and confess them, we'd be honored to pray for you. Brother Cale has chosen Song 95 as a song of encouragement. And if we could be of help at this time, we encourage you to come while together we stand and sing. <laughs>